COVID and QAnon are not the first. There's a long history between pandemics and extremism. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Neither the extreme religious political ferocity nor the pandemic itself taking hundreds of thousands of lives is new to Western civilization. In fact, as our guest today writes, plagues have always led to apocalyptic thinking. Since ancient times, pandemics have spurred twists and turns in political beliefs, spawning extremist movements, waves of mistrust and wholesale rejection of authorities, often dragging good sense with it. Our guest today, John Fia, is Distinguished Professor of American History at Messiah College in Mechanicburg, PA. His new book is titled, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. His audience for this book is his fellow evangelicals, who he argues sold their souls for the sake of worldly power. And no surprise, Professor Fia is well acquainted with the wrath from Christian right. In the past, for instance, he has been castigated for another book. Was America founded as a Christian nation? His answer is, of course, an uncategorical no. In his latest book, Fia taps into his own personal identity as a Christian evangelical to drill down into the historical forces that led 81% of his brethren to vote for a candidate who had no apparent Christian values and at every turn seems to violate the faith's tenets. And today we're going to address the curious history of interplay between pandemics and extremism. Well, thanks so much for being with us. And before we get going, tell us, please, about uh, Messiah College and where you are coming from. Yeah, sure. Um, Messiah College, we just actually became a university. Uh, Messiah University is located in Mechanicsburg, which is right outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, the school is a, you know, is a decidedly Christian uh, university, but oftentimes it gets confused with some of the more um, conservative uh, Christian right universities, like say Jerry Falwell uh-huh. Liberty University or Bob Jones. Messiah College or Messiah University comes out of the Anabaptist uh, tradition, uh, the Reformation tradition known as Anabaptism, yeah. which has a deep commitment to uh, social justice. Um, a deep commitment to pacifism. And, you know, just, just to give you an example, uh, Messiah University Anabaptists tend to place um, place uh, the kingdom of God, as we describe it, over any kind of sense of nationalism. So we don't even fly a United States flag on campus. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting place. I don't come from that Anabaptist tradition, but... Um, it is certainly I've learned a lot from my from my Anabaptist friends uh, here at Messiah. So it's a it's a it's an interesting place to work. Very diverse in terms of um, you know within the Christian tradition. Very right. diverse in terms of politics and um, social social engagement. Well, it sounds like uh, a lot of the, their values are the same as my values, but I'm a little old to start college again. Uh, <laughs> perhaps we can credit the pandemic 
for leading to some of the shocking things that many Americans these days not only believe but are expressing. For example, Democrats kidnap and eat children. Democrats are Satan worshipers. The media focus on the pandemic is worse than the pandemic itself. Democrats are communists who want to take away all your guns and all your rights. Some dark, deep state has thrived in the catacombs and is undermining our legitimate government. Somehow, magically, Democrats worked in hiding in every state and stole the election. Masks are only there as a tool to enforce tyranny, not health. No way have 500,000 Americans died from COVID. They're just lying as part of a sinister plan. Uh, Anthony Fauci is an enemy of the people. He is a threat. He's actually had death threats. People waved banners saying, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. And there's a big increase in Asian Americans being attacked physically because of the false belief and assistance that China not only created COVID, but also intentionally unleashed it on white Christian Americans as a way to destroy America. And of course, science is bunk. My beliefs are right. Medical knowledge so carefully gained is, it's all just made up. When people are frightened and don't understand, I think it's part of human nature, we do crazy things. So what can we learn about pandemics in history that might help us understand and deflate this nonsense? Because we can learn that 14th century healers were at loss to explain the cause of the Black Death, the plague. Many Europeans ascribed supernatural forces, earthquakes, and malicious conspiracies, among other things, as possible reasons for the plague's emergence. Some Christians accused Jews of poisoning public water supplies in an effort to ruin uh, civilization. So what can we learn from history that might help us understand how we got there and how we can deflate this nonsense? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, like, you're exactly right with everything you say. I mean, whenever we, whenever we see these kinds of pandemics or, or um, crises in the kind of, um, you know, kind of natural world, uh, there's always been historically kind of this kind of apocalyptic thinking, this kind of, you know, providential uh, understanding of the world. Um, you know, this goes all the way back to, you know, the Jewish story of uh, the Exodus, right? You know, the, the plagues, right? It must be, it must be God um, who, is, who is somehow, um, you know, punishing us. Uh, you see the same kind of you see the same kind of response in America in the 17th century. Uh, you know the Puritans, whenever there was an earthquake or an Indian attack or smallpox or something like that, uh, you began to see um, them double down on their mm. sort of providentialism, their sense of um, their sense of you know interpreting the world through a spiritual lens. So I think there's always been this tension between um, you know religion. Uh, you know, broadly defined, uh, religious beliefs, supernatural beliefs, and uh, kind of especially after the Enlightenment in the 18th century, uh, you know, rational, rational, evidence-based, scientific ways of understanding the world. And as much as we would like to think that the Enlightenment has somehow triumphed mm. uh, in, in, you know, some complete way, uh, it really, it really has not. No. Um, and usually we see where it hasn't when we run into these um these pandemics so so you know over and over again throughout american history 
Um, and I think your, your reference to the word fear is important, right? These pandemics, these plagues, whatever they might be, invoke, uh, invoke significant degrees of fear in people, right? Death and so forth. And sometimes those fears are legitimate. Yeah. And, you know, rather than turning to evidence and science and so forth, people tend to turn to uh, faith, supernatural belief, um, you know, and oftentimes, of course, as you mentioned, those supernatural, uh, especially in an American context, those supernatural beliefs are then applied uh, to politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and in the American twentieth century America, especially, right? You know, and suddenly, then, rather than having a sort of public sphere, public square, uh, in which you enter that public square based upon rational ideas, scientific evidence, right? Um, you enter that public sphere, not sphere, not based on, um, you know, these kinds of rational things, but rather through, uh, Christian beliefs or some other kind of supernatural belief, whether it be God or the Christian God or Q or, you know, what, whatever, whatever it might be. So I think, I think, I think we saw a perfect storm in the last five years, four or five years, not just the pandemic, obviously that was important, but I think, uh, the, the assault on kind of truth and science by, uh, you know, the Trump yeah. administration. Um, and, you know, you know, uh, at least two things have kind of come together um, and created really a crisis of, um, you know, American public life, how one speaks in, a, in, the, in public. Wow, that is still a bit frightening. And wouldn't it be nice if the Enlightenment yeah. were... <laughs> pretty much taken for granted and accepted. And throughout history, you know, there's actions and reactions. And, uh, you know, FDR had his New Deal, and that defined the Republicans ever since in opposition to the New Deal. And yet here we have a new President Biden who's talking about some New Deal kind of thing. So history moves in many ways at the same time. And, you know, America in specific and Western civilization in general always loves a spectacle. Magic has long been a draw to large audiences. People make good money from performing magic. Social media, the Wild West Internet, seems to be sort of a new performance platform stage. How has COVID-19, the pandemic, nourished fantasy performances on that stage? And how does that appeal to people in their lonely COVID isolation, that spectacle of sort of something magical. Yeah, sure. I think, I think, you know, we historians, we like to think about change over time, but also about continuity or I should say continuity, but also change over time. So, you know, my answer to my last question was kind of, we've seen these things over and over and over again. Right. But there is something unique. There is something different, right. Change going on right now. And I think that is, I think you nailed it with the social media um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, all these chat rooms and so forth. This has kind of lifted a veil of civil discourse. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of said, you know, no longer do we have to kind of enter public life in a kind of civil way. We can just, re- you know, you really see people for who they are at this point. And you see people, you know, they're, they're, they're again, their fears, their irrational beliefs, um, you begin to realize once again, you know, maybe the did not uh, do the work it was supposed to do. 
So I think what COVID does, especially in the community that I'm very familiar with, the evangelical community, um, what COVID what COVID does is it it brings back all of those um, all of those tensions again between faith and reason. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of Christian traditions, particularly the Catholic tradition, which has a long history of um, reconciling faith and reason. Right, they're not at odds with one another. The evangelical community has largely been an anti-intellectual community. Uh, they're only concerned about the next life, not this one. Um, they're very concerned about, you know, serving others and doing good deeds, not on thinking. So what the COVID-19 does, um, it, it taps into those fears and, you know, of death, of, you know, loved ones losing their lives and so forth. Um but at the same time, it then forces or, or leads evangelicals into this kind of faith over reason, um, right? You know, you know, ev- evidence-based uh, science is no longer right. uh, important. And when, and and again, in the isolation point is a is a gr- is a good one, right? You know, especially when you're in quarantine and so forth, and your only outlet. Are these is this silo that you're a part of, right? What I mean by silo is, you know, most people, as we know, are get, only getting their news from one source, right, or two sources, uh, whether it be Fox News or Rush Limbaugh uh, or so forth. And as a result, um, I think what you what you have is this failure to engage with views that are very different from one's own. Even now, you can't even go to work now and talk to a person, a person who's a Democrat or someone who has a different view than you do, right? Um, mm. You're only engaged in that that social media silo, and you know I think democracy requires democracy requires a public space, a public sphere, a place uh, where different views are bantered back and forth, you know, on an equal basis, where people are listening to one another and having empathy for people. Other people's ideas. Wow, and I was in the New Hampshire State Senate for fourteen years. I a Democrat, and there were a lot of Republicans. Sometimes there was six of us against yeah. eighteen of them. They were not like this. We had civility. We could be. Yeah. I mean, there's the famous story of uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. They were friends. Yeah, we were. And now, boy, that's that's tough. It's not like that. Uh, this. Uh, Internet thingy. Wow, I'll tell you, I was I like the twentieth century myself. <laughs> yeah. There's been a there's been a kind of but there's been a kind of what you know, I've been referring to as a, a sort of unveiling in the last yes, five years. Yes. Whether social media again has sort of lifted this veil of you know, at least for, for you know, you talk about your experience in, in the legislature there in New Hampshire, you know, there was this sense of of, you know, you fought hard for your ideas. Right, you won or you lost, um, but now, now you just you know when you lose or even when you win, you turn to your social media silo yes. and and start complaining and whining and so forth. And you know those that is your that is your kind of mm. your audience now. Yeah, uh, and, it, and this is not the first time. But as I've said before, and listeners can know what I'm about to say, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. Uh, we yeah. we are in a period of expectations, you know, the internet and so many things, of instant solutions and very fleeting attention spans. 
science and the necessary research provide anything but quick, easy, overarching answers to complex problems. In the face of this frightening pandemic, how did this unrealistic hunger for quick, simple solutions affect the growth of extremism? Yeah, and I think, again, as you mentioned, this is tapping into a, a much longer pattern um, in the kind of intense intense war that has been happening for much of the 20th and into the 20th century between whether you call it faith and reason or, you know, I go back to uh, the, the threats to traditional Christian faith on science, um, you know, uh, you know, the back and forth, these wars, these fundamentalists and modernists in the early 20th century. Um, but I think, I think, you know, your point about complexity, I think is an important one and nuance. Um, you know, what history does teach us is that the human experience is a complex experience. Yes. It's nuanced, right? Yeah. And educated, educated people, right? People who are, you know, the founding fathers believe this, right? They, this is why they wanted an educated republic. Yes, absolutely. Because educate, educated people are going to see human beings as deeply complex individuals who cannot be easily put into this box or that box, but also problems uh, in our culture are, are um, addressed, uh, must be addressed oh. through kind of complex solutions, right? Yes. So, you know, um, I'll just, I'll dive right in here. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know of any, I don't know of any woman or man who thinks abortion is a good thing, right? right? You know, I mean, no one wants to have an abortion, but but no one's addressing. So so let's try to reduce the numbers of abortions. Right. How do you do that? Well, that takes complex that, you know, right now we're in a black and white situation that's all based upon Roe versus Wade and the overturning of of, the Supreme Court overturning of that 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 law. Um, But, you know. We fail to look at because we're so caught up in these this this binary kind of Manichaean yeah. way of looking at the world, um, you know, it's just black or white. We fail to see, for example, that the Mexico City policy that's been so debated right now. You know, when whenever the Mexico City policy has not been uh, in place, um, abortion rates have gone down around the world. You know, this is the policy about funding abortions, uh, American money of funding funding abortions right. in other other countries, right? When we when we fund abortions in other countries, that means the money is also going towards uh, women's health, yeah, and it significantly drops the number of abortions, right? So, you know, I mean, this is this is the kind of complexity that that plays into this, and then and then you know, with the pan with pandemic with the pandemic coming in. Um, you see something very similar. It's either science or anti-science. Right. It's either masks or not masks. It's either you know social distancing or not. It's either you know. I was just watching a, a, a mm. big megachurch pastor out in California. Right. Oh it's either it's either you you have faith and don't wear a mask, or you are faithless and have to wear a mask. Right. <sighs> and this is that kind of this is that kind of lack of of nuance and complexity that we need to kind of you know deal with these deal with these these big issues 
Oh, it's too complicated, I guess. And I, I do find it's, it's fascinating about, you know, you're right. Our founders all recognize education, widespread public education yeah. is essential for people to govern themselves. And the reality yeah. is a lot of the people on the far right are against education. They believe that and they insist that public education is public indoctrination. You're not supposed to be able to think critically. You're just supposed to follow the faith and that there's either faith or education. You're in the faith and education business. <laughs> it does yeah, work well yeah. together. For those who may have just yeah. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're doing uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Uh, our guest is John Fia, Distinguished Professor at American History at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And today we're discussing the curious history of interplay between pandemics and extremism. And another aspect of the pandemic, as we mentioned, is people being isolated. It's really affecting people, everybody. We get lonely, stuck at home. People find more time yeah. to explore curious questions. Where does the appeal of extremism fit in with this pandemic-caused situation? Yeah, I mean, again, I can speak, uh, you know, kind of with some degree of authority in the sort of Christian communities that, that I kind of, the circles that I run in. Um, again, I, I mentioned this before, I think... Uh, people have a lot more time on their hands. Um, you know, they're not going into work as much anymore. They're working from home. Uh, it's much easier to kind of flip back and forth between uh, the latest chat room or Facebook right. page and 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 your work. You, know, you have no one looking over your shoulder and so forth. You know, this may have this may have a lot to do with it. Um, but again, it goes back to this idea of education, right? You yes. know, when you're only reading. You know, when you're only reading certain, certain um, websites, you're only listening to certain people. Um, it's going to it's going to make you more prone to extremism. I think we see this particularly in the evangelical community with those who are sort of over sixty years old. Mm. Um, you know, and especially people who are retired. A lot of those baby boomers, right? Um, older baby boomers, and, and what they're doing in the evangelical community is they go to church, and, you know, maybe they watch their church service on Zoom, Zoom yeah. uh, you know, on Sunday, or, and, you know, we're talking here, you know, even white evangelicals, probably like 20 to 25 percent of the United States population. So this is, these are not just some, you know, strange yeah. kind of minority. I know. These are the people who basically put Trump in office in 2016. Yes. So what they're doing is, what they're doing is they are, sitting at home and they're watching um, Fox News or Newsmax or One American News, mm. reading their Facebook pages and so forth. And they are being, to use a Christian term that we use in the evangelical community, they are being discipled by that kind mm. of media. Mm. Uh, their pastors, many of them who I've spoken to and gotten to know, uh, you know, dozens of them, um, admit to me that they don't have a chance. They get them one day a week, right? Now, again, some pastors are also fanning the flames, yeah. right? Oh. They're not being particularly helpful. But most pastors I talk to um, are saying, you know, people can't come to church. They just tune in on Sundays or, you know, to their Zoom feed or whatever it is, their webinar feed, to watch the service. We can't compete with that. Oh, right? Goodness. They're getting 24-7 uh -huh. 
indoctrination every day from the media. And, you know, with the, with the kind of public square, again, I'll keep using that term, with yeah, the kind sure. of public square kind of essentially closed down, right? Whether that public space is your workplace or your, your town council meeting or your, you know, running into friends in the grocery store or whatever. With all of that shut down, the media plays this incredibly powerful role in spreading these kinds of, uh, you know, extreme um, conspiracy theories. Wow. Yeah, they certainly are. How can you compete? That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about 20%. A recent NPR Ipsos poll revealed that nearly one in five, about 20%, say they believe yeah. Satan-worshipping, child-enslaving elites seem seek to control the world. This is the 21st century. That, that's yeah. amazing to me that they believe the Democrats are Satan worshiping, child enslaving elites, that whole thing with the, but they believe it. And it's, there's something, I don't know, I guess it must fill some, some needs, some space. Uh, this, well, the, here's what space it does, it does feed, Bert. I mean, it's within good. most of those, you know, first of all, in order to believe that they're, uh, the Democrats are some kind of Satan, you know, worshiping conspiracists and spiritists, you have to actually believe in Satan. Right, <laughs> you have to actually True. believe that there is a devil who is who is stalking you, and you know is is responsible for all evil. And the reason I say that is because these are evangelicals who are the ones who are saying these things. Right, most of the kind of spiritualized language about demonic things come from these evangelicals, and um, so that's what I mean. We say you have to believe in this stuff first before you believe that there's some kind of demonic child abuse uh, ring going on in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza place, right? You know, with that whole pizza gate thing and so forth. So you're absolutely right, you know. Um, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea of fear and demographic and social change. They go hand in hand. Many white evangelicals especially have always had control uh, to some extent. You know, we've had separation of church and state and so forth, but they have always dictated the culture. They have always been, you know, we have always been in some ways a Christian culture. Now, that doesn't mean we were founded as a Christian nation, but we've always been majority Christian, right? So, you know, why do we get off for Christmas, you know, or, you know, all these kinds of things. They're deeply, this Christian idea is deeply embedded uh, in our culture. And within, you know, probably in the last 30, 40 years, especially since the 1960s, all of those uh, values that many white evangelical Christians have held so dear, whether it be issues related to marriage, whether it be issues related to abortion, um, you know, religious liberty seems to be under threat, they yeah, say, sure. right? These things, these things, the, the country is changing, and evangelicals tend to look back rather than look forward. They don't. They have a hard time embracing change oh, yeah. because if you believe that America was sort of founded by God to be this pure and holy place, you don't want to hear about anything that contradicts your understanding of wow. the Bible or of Scripture or so forth. So when Democrats say, you know, we want to give rights to LGBTQ people. Right. Right, say the Equality Act, which the House just passed the other day. Um, 
that is indeed um, anti-God, or that could that could be perceived by some evangelicals as demonic, mm-hmm. right? You know, because it contradicts the will of God. So, again, all of this, going back to my point, all of this is about, um, you know, you, you know, you might believe that it's demonic, right? right. But we, we don't actually live in a Christian country. No. You know, the laws, you know, we, when you enter public life and try to make public policy and try to uh, speak in a, um, you know, speak in a way that all people can understand— you don't, you yeah, know, the enemy. this is America. <laughs> you don't bring that spiritual language that you can't prove. It's like the people today who who say, like, there definitely was election fraud, right? The Democrats oh, yeah. stole the election. Yeah. Well, how do you know? God told me. No. <laughs> right? No I mean, I laugh, but you're right. And it's true. Yeah. It, it, you're right. How can you talk to somebody who believes that America was created by God and that, uh, yeah. you know, it's perfect as it is with the white certain sex or the Christian uh, sex yeah. uh, 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 males in charge of things. And I find it fascinating that when these these groups that we're talking about talk about religious liberty, what they mean by religious liberty is religious domination and control. I believe very strongly in the intent of our founders. There's church and state are two entirely separate yeah. things. And when they say religious liberty, how they twist these words, and yeah. a lot of it gets more strength from the panic, the fear yeah. of the pandemic. So bizarre. Yeah. I think you're. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think, I think the you know the anti science and all of these kinds of things are just part of this larger picture. Yeah. I a, a there's a. Trust in our leaders gets very much affected, and it has been affected by the uh, rampant, uncontrolled disease. There's a move gaining traction in California, for example, to recall the governor. And in a New York Times article on this, the reporter notes, quote, Across the country, pandemic-weary Americans are taking their rage and grief out on chief executives. What concerns does this raise with you? Yeah. Yeah. Again, speaking... um largely from my understanding of uh, this very large evangelical Christian subculture. Um, what, you're, what you're seeing here is especially, most of the resistance is coming from, um, well, it's coming from two places. It's coming from sort of the extreme right, who I think are driven by uh, a sense of, of white nationalism and Christian nationalism. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and what I mean by Christian nationalism, again, goes back to this point I made, that the United States was founded as and continues to be a Christian nation. So what you're seeing is, you know, I'm thinking of, again, some of these, there, there are several very powerful megachurch pastors in California who have been, who have been challenging Newsom's, clo- you know, closings and so forth. Um, but this is happening not just in California, but elsewhere. Uh, through through their media channels, through their radio hosts, through their television programs, which most, you know, if you're not familiar with this world, you don't understand that there is this entire kind of media infrastructure that these people listen to that, you know, most Americans, the majority of Americans don't listen to. But what you're seeing is it's specifically related to the closing of churches, right? You know, if we're a Christian nation and mm. you don't let people go to church, right, 
this, again, could be some kind of supernatural forces, satanic, demonic forces, right, that, that, are, that have won the day. Uh-huh. And we need to, we need to, you know, we need to open up the churches. And, right. You know, you hear a lot of this, a lot of what I find is really interesting, especially in the pandemic, is a lot of this closing of churches, right, um, you hear evangelicals saying things like, we need to open up the churches so people can come back to church, and then there will be a great revival right, that will take place. People will just pour through the doors, right, and they will accept Jesus, and they will, you know, become born again and so forth, right? But right now, Satan has control, they would say, right? This gets into this really wild kind of extremism, right? Right now, the, the devil in the form of the Democratic Party has control over these churches, and we need to we need to lift that curse off of the churches so that once that curse is lifted, uh, people will start coming in. There'll be a revival. This idea of a great awakening is also for some of your listeners who may be affiliated with the whole QAnon phenomenon. Yes. No, they probably are. This idea <laughs> of a, this idea of a great awakening is very similar to the Q Great Awakening, right? In other words, um, you know, the forces of the democratic the democratic tyranny, right? They're taking away our rights and liberties. There's going to be a great revival. Steve Bannon used to talk about this. He still does, actually. You know, Trump's advisor. Right. Um, so, so there's some connections there between the church and the conspiracy theory Q, and you see a lot of conservative evangelical Christians buying into Q, but it's all related to churches being closed. Um, and then also kind of our liberties being, you know, for lack of a better term, closed or, or right. taken away from us, right? Our ability to, you know, we now have to wear masks, right? We yeah. don't have any rights anymore. We should, we, you know, if you look at the founding of this country, individual rights are always understood by the founders in the context of the public good. In the context of the public good. Absolutely. If you don't, if you, you have rights, right? I was just teaching this the other day to my students, you know, um, you know, you don't have the right to do something that's going to hurt the greater good of the, of the Republic. Right. You know, at least that's what the founders believe. Now they would champion the idea, of course, of individual rights. Yeah. But, those rights are always understood in kind of tension with community. And I always understood it as, yeah, I have every right to throw a punch, but my right to throw a punch ends where your nose begins. If it's exactly. going to hurt you, I can't yeah. do it. For those who may yeah. have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are, as a group, keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is John Fia, Distinguished Professor of American History at Messiah College. He's an interesting uh, point of view from teaching at an evangelical college on the curious history between the interplay between pandemics and extremism. And in the 1300s, there was that other plague, and there was a perceived failure of God to answer the prayers, uh, and it had a lot of effect there. Christians accused Jews of poisoning public water supplies in an effort to ruin European civilization. That sounds so familiar, you know, that, oh, that yeah. it's, it's this other, and eventually, eventually they found out that it was fleas on rats. Science. Yeah. Hey, imagine that. Well, here's another, here's another good one. Bert. What's that? Um, back in 1918, 
the flu, the influenza, yeah. yes, you know, ran through the country. A lot of a lot of these devout evangelicals, including the famous, um, basically the Billy Graham of his era, a man named Billy Sunday. Some of your listeners may be oh, yeah. familiar with that name. Heard the name. Um, Billy Sunday traveled from city to city to city preaching, and he was in Providence, Rhode Island, in the fall of 2018, when the second major wave of the, the 1918. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and that when the second major wave of the uh, pandemic, um, you know, came into America, and he he blamed the pandemic. You talk about blaming the pandemic on Jews and so forth. He blamed the pandemic on. So um, it, it, the Germans had to be behind it. Because, ah. of course, it was World War One, right? You know, we are in the middle of World War One. So he immediately concluded that this was this pandemic was some kind of an attempt, a wartime attempt for the, the Nazis, or not the Nazis, but this was earlier, the Germans, right. you know, to, to try to um, to try to undermine American ideals and American values by sending this plague. And then, you know, you fast forward, you hear people like, you oh, know, yeah. the, the Jerry Fulwell Jr., president of, former president of Liberty University, right? What was the first thing he said uh, when the pandemic broke? North Korea must be behind it, right? Or China must be behind it. Or, you know, the Soviets are somehow involved, right? Yeah. So there's always this kind of politicization of these pandemics, of these plagues, of whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, we can't just think about them in in terms of just pure anti-intellectualism, but <laughs> anti-intellectualism that marshals towards political ends. Wow, yeah, and it does get ugly. I mean, lots of... Uh... It, it, they've been increased physical attacks on people who look Asian American because the Chinese, and remember that former orange thing who was in the White House, well, I guess he's still orange, uh, blamed, he called it the Chinese flu, the Chinese, and it's not true, but I guess truth doesn't matter so much. Well, if you believe in, if you believe in this stuff, if you believe that, you know, we are, we are, you know, it's this old Cold War mentality in some ways, right? right? That right. We, are, we are the Christian nation. We are the virtuous nation. You know, we'll look, we'll look, we look aside at all of our flaws, right? We would, you know, go back to history in schools and so forth. We, we don't want, you know, our kids learning about slavery or right. treatment of Native Americans and so forth. We're the innocent country. We're the pure country. We're the Christian country, right? Right. So, so you know, of course, if there's problems, you don't blame us. You don't blame the brokenness of our democracy or the failure mm. to uphold our most, you know, our most treasured ideals, as Martin Luther King Jr. said. You blame it on somebody else, right? Like, like Germany or China or the Jews or, you know, these kinds of things. Yeah, the dark people teeming across the border down south. Got to put up that wall. Yeah. And yeah. how, did, how did all this, you know, the ascribing of incredible evil, blaming certainly certain ethnic groups for the origin of the plague and that Democrats are Satanists and QAnon conspiracy theories about deep state. Uh, is, is there, and, and how did all this affect January 6th, do you think? When we saw people literally waving those flags, Jesus is my yeah. savior, Trump is my president, yeah. and just... Absolute true belief. Uh, t talk about how this yeah. may have affected January 6th and how people were just absolutely no doubt they were right. They were protecting sure. this pure, innocent nation. Yeah. 
I think there's an extreme fringe of the evangelical world um, that, uh, you know, I mean, there's a difference here. You know, I, I, I again talk about nuance, right? I think I think there are evangelicals who, you know, 81% of evangelicals voted for white evangelicals voters picked Trump in 2016. The number was about the same in 2020. Um, no real change there. Uh, now, there's a difference between somebody who, you know, doesn't like, who likes Donald Trump's policies but can't stand the guy and they right. couldn't stand Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Right. So they voted for Trump, right? right. Those people, right. I think the majority of white evangelicals would have openly condemned what happened on January 6th. But there is a there is a vocal fringe which seems to be getting all the attention, oh, yeah. and you know of course they are because they're the ones invading the Capitol, right? And and we love spectacles, yes. We love spectacles. You know that that believe that truly believe that Donald Trump, God placed the Christian God placed Donald yes. Trump yes. in on this earth, uh, almost as you know an Old Testament. King Cyrus, King Cyrus, for the listeners don't know, was the was the Persian king who allowed the Jews to leave their captivity and go back to the promised land. And you hear them talking over and over again. Trump is a new King Cyrus. He is somebody who God has put here to deliver the United States, the Christian United States, from the evils of whatever, the Obama administration or the, you know, of liberalism and so forth. So when you truly believe that, that Trump is an anointed one, right. Right. Then you are going to be willing to perhaps not only fight, but even maybe die for, you know, this anointed leader of God. So I think there's a long history of this um, in American evangelicalism where, you know, you believe that God raises people up at different times, but we've uh-huh. never seen it in American history, at least. We've never seen it in a such extreme fashion as Donald Trump. And it's so ironic because, of course, Donald Trump doesn't represent sure. any of the values that even Joe Christians, you know, hold dear. So this is like a really, really interesting moment in the sort of history of the Republic that at least for evangelicals' relationship to politics, that they would get behind um, this man as a sort of anointed figure. And that, of course, you know, they're, they're literally, we're not learning, there were pastors, evangelical pastors, who were storming the Capitol. Yeah, because yeah. they believed hmm. that, you know, they needed to save their nation. There's one. There was one pastor who went on Twitter and said, um, I know I might get fired from my job as a pastor for being here, but my country is more important. And there's something deeply embedded within American evangelicalism that, you know, we are this exceptional nation because right. God made us an exceptional nation. And thus, fighting for the cause of the nation, in this case, Donald Trump, mm. almost okay. takes precedent over, you know, it's back at the beginning of our conversation when I talked about Messiah College not flying a flag because we reject that idea. Right. So, but, but most most white evangelicals, at least when taken to its logical conclusion, will will um, always fight for country because there's hard it's hard to separate God and country. No, I suppose God and country. As I'll tell you, as a World War One nut, nationalism, God and country, glory. I don't yep. like it. I don't think it does good. <laughs> I really yep. don't. 
If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking about the curious interplay between pandemics and extremism. Our guest today is a distinguished professor in American history at Messiah College, John Fia. And no doubt you're familiar with uh, John Lennon's line, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. I think that's terribly oversimplified. But it does seem that if the universe doesn't make immediate sense, there's some primitive longing for childlike fantasy to explain the great mystery. And I love that so many uh, uh, indigenous Americans, the so-called Indians, called God the great mystery. But it seems like there's uncertainty, and then there's certainty. Yeah. yeah. And Trump was a knight in shining armor who had tremendous... He really... He just... Uh, uh, broadcast certainty, no question, certainty. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the appeal of that, if you would, please. And that is, I think, what draws many, many conservative evangelicals to him. You know, I loved your point you just made about mystery. I think, I think Christianity, evangelical Christianity, especially in America, needs more mystery. Um, you know, one I of like the things it. that I've always... Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I just said I like it. I can live with mystery. I think it's way fun. Go yeah, ahead. One, I think one of the one of the great values in the Christian traditions, one of the great values I think of the Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox uh-huh. faith, is the emphasis on the mystery of God. Right. Yeah. You know. But but remember, evangelicals believe that when they get saved, when they become born again, they develop. You may have heard, your, your listeners may have heard of this phrase, right? I. Jesus is in my heart, right? I, Jesus is my friend. I have a personal, personal relationship with Jesus, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and oftentimes, when that translates into public life, or when that translates it translates into politics, what it essentially suggests is that I can know the will of God, right? Because Jesus is living in me, right? right. Or yeah. Jesus speaks to me directly, right? So. You know, there's this sense of certainty there, right? I know that the election was stolen. Right. I know. Well, give me evidence. Right. Then you make appeal to the Enlightenment, right? Well, give me evidence <laughs> to support that, right? I just know it in my heart. It's this kind of piety uh, that exists. And piety is always, oftentimes, I should say, not always, but right. oftentimes, contradicts kind of, you know, Enlightenment reason or evidence or scientific fact. So... Yeah, and I think this goes all the way back to the evangelical roots in the fundamentalist movements of the ninth of the early twentieth century, right? You know, you read the Bible one way, you're certain right. about what the Bible says and how it applies to this or that situation. There's no humility, which hmm. I think is a Christian a Christian virtue. Right? I would think there's no humility. There's no mystery. Yeah. They 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 go to church. Evangelicals go to church every Sunday morning and sing like these praise songs. Right, our God is an awesome God, and He's right. above all. He's omniscient and all powerful. Right, but but yet they have the arrogance to believe that they actually know Him and know exactly what His will is. Ah. He's other. He's other. Right? But. But we know exactly what he's thinking, and now we're going to translate that into public life. Now, again, as an evangelical Christian myself, and as you know, I reject, I reject this sense of certainty because the God I believe in and worship in is much bigger, uh, you know, than 
any kind of human understanding of you know that. So so you know I think every Christian must always be be cautious and 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 sensitive about going into the public life, political life with this sense of certainty, because that can be extremely dangerous, as we've seen. And I wonder about how, you know, it's certainly true that, you know, part of human nature, they're rarely good decisions if they're based on panic and or rage. The pandemic is 500,000 people? Dead? I mean, it certainly triggered fear. And as H.L. Mencken famously said, that for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. This this desperate search for simplicity, how is it making a bad situation even worse, do you think? Well, I think, you know, when you see the world in black and white, and you don't see the world in shades of gray, you don't see the world in terms of nuance, you don't, you know, your your faith is not a, a faith that, you know, can is can be reconciled with science or with uh, evidence or with reason um, as, as white evangelicalism has been historically. There's a famous uh, evangelical uh, historian of a generation older than me, Mark Knoll, who wrote a famous book to evangelicals called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Um, and the first sentence of, of the book is, uh, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical mind. Right? Now, now evangelicals have been doing good work for centuries. You know, let's not forget that evangelicals have been feeding the poor. They've sure. been sort of fighting against slavery, fought against slavery. They, you know, they, they were involved in the civil rights movement to some degree. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they've been activists in a good way. They brought clean water to people in Africa. They're, they're you know, all of these things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've done good things, but they, they're, they're a, it's a faith of action, not a faith of the mind. Uh-huh. And, and evangelicals tend to reject reason, and that leads them to kind of simplistic answers, and they're willing to follow anyone who can offer these kinds of simplistic answers, these Manichaean black and white binary answers mm. to the problems of the world. And that's not how the problems of the world get solved. Well, I don't know that much about liberation theology, but I do know that uh, some church authorities were really down on liberation theology. Yeah. And it has helped free the downtrodden from dictatorships, learning how to write and take power themselves and stuff. I wonder, might something be there in liberation theology that might be helpful in this strange and dangerous time? Or is it just unrelated? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of evangelicals, more moderate and evangelicals who, you know, may associate with the left. They're, they're out there. They're a small number, but they're out there. Um, you know, I would probably consider myself one of those evangelicals, um, you know, who are beginning to understand the the Christian gospel, not only in terms, you know, not only just in terms of like, well, accept Jesus and be saved, right? And then you'll go to heaven. Right. Right. End of story. But rather... But rather that, you know, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the so-called Great Commission, um, you know, it says, go into the world, um, preach the gospel, and do what I have commanded you, Jesus says. Well, you read, like, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus making commands in there, right, to, to, to serve others, to love your enemy as yourself. 
to you know, the, Jesus says like a rich man can't get through the right. you know, uh, you know, rich man in the eye of the needle, right? How do I get to heaven? Well, if you're a rich man, you know, you it's like you passing through the eye of a needle. It's very difficult. Yeah. All of these commands, yeah. And I think I think while while evangelicals would reject parts of liberation theology because it suggests that one can sort of be justified before God through just simply good deeds, right? Uh-huh. I think there are also, you see moderate and evangelicals, uh, moderate and left evangelicals saying there's a lot in liberation theology. There's a lot in the sort of black liberation theology. Oh, yeah. uh, people, theologians like James Cone who wrote this famous book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Ooh. about race in America. Oh my. Um, you know, and how white evangelicals have contributed to uh, racism. So I think, I think there's certain evangelicals who are waking up to this. Yes. But these are not the evangelicals who are storming the Capitol, right. voting for Donald Trump. These people reject all forms of kind of systemic racism in our culture sure. because it's all individual. Sins are individual. There are no systemic sins, hmm. right, in our culture. Interesting. So, you know, liberation theology, of course, calls for the acknowledgement of these kinds of deeply systemic sins and how we can, through policy and through acts of mercy and justice, uh, alleviate those those problems. And, and I would think if one is... Uh you know, a believer in God, which frankly I am, I'll admit, and happily, that uh, the earth is God's creation. I think maybe we ought to take care of it, you know, and it's it's like uh, we, we have a stewardship here. So what positive and perhaps unique role can religion and religious leaders play in helping Americans sure. free themselves from this clearly destructive uh, attitude and uh, belief system? Yeah. Well, I think most of the I think most of the things that religion religion can do, and I'll talk about my faith tradition again, which is a significant one in this nation, the evangelical faith tradition. Everything that they that's necessary for them to do, it's going to be very difficult for them to do because they do not represent the values of the Republican Party in which evangelicals have kind of sold their soul to. So I'll preface I'll preface my saying with that. I think evangelicals first of all, need to develop uh, a much more sophisticated understanding of the relationship between social justice and action and government. Uh, there's always, there's this longstanding mistrust that government um, cannot, you know, evangelicals believe government is ordained by God, but yet when it comes to government sort of trying to um, promote or, or, you know, perform acts of acts of mercy and justice or whatever in the world, evangelicals reject that. Yeah. I think I think this whole idea you're talking about, we evangelicals call this environmental stewardship, yeah. creation care. Yeah. Right? Creation care. You know, e- yeah, evangelicals believe that, you know, God created the world and it was good yeah. in Genesis one and two, right? It was good. Um, you know, I think evangelicals believe that sin entered the world and created a kind of brokenness that broke this kind of wholeness and shalom of the world. Uh But, you know, we can work towards its restoration, right? By caring for the environment, by, by caring for our, 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 even our man-made institutions and politics and so forth, investing in those things, not necessarily out of the pursuit of some kind of political power yeah. or certainty, <laughs> but out of a out of a sense of 
humbly kind of serving our fellow human beings and our environment, right? So, so what might that look like? What might be what might evangelical poverty relief look like? The thing, mm. the point is, Bert, that all of these concerns um, are deeply uh, embedded within evangelical theology. You can make a theological case for all of uh-huh, this. Uh-huh. Yeah. But because a certain political uh, view of the world has sort of hijacked the evangelical yeah. church, people who are making those arguments, and they are out there, oh, yeah. are not... Yeah. being heard and not getting any traction. Well, it doesn't have the same spectacle that we love to see. I mean, no. you know, politics fact, is... It's the quiet, it's the yes. quiet work of men and women serving their God in local places outside of the public eye that are uh, that is unrelated to power. The pursuit of political power. Yeah, doing the, doing the right thing. What a concept. And I wonder, in, you know... It finally, the, the plague finally disappeared. No one's quite sure why, but the Biden administration is actually taking concrete steps to yeah. to do something about COVID. And Trump believed that magic, oh, it'll just disappear. Do you yeah. think when, I mean, it was starting to see some numbers go down. I hope people are still careful. I, I wonder if once, you know, it gets under control, knock on wood, I'm waiting for my shot, I'll tell you. Uh, will it cool the enthusiasm for conspiracy theories? Will the appeal of extremism due to COVID start to noticeably ease as it finally did with that 13, or 14th century plague? I mean, historically, right, if histor- history is any guide on this, of course, I'm no prophet, right? I'm yeah. a historian. I look back, not to the future. Right? But if history is any indication, it will. Good. Um, and that doesn't mean it will disappear for forever, right. but it will arise again during the next major sort of crisis or, or whatever <laughs> that you know, pandemic or so. But I fully, I, if history is a guide, um, you know, it won't completely dissipate, right. but it'll go back underground yeah. only to emerge again <laughs> when, you know, who knows in 2024 when Trump announces he's oh, running again geez. or something to that effect. Right. But that seems to be, I think you're right about the 14th century. I think you're right about 1918. Um, you know, I think these I think these conspiracy theories tend to run kind of in cycles, yeah. kind of almost like in a roller coaster type fashion. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I have to say, our guest has been John Fia, and his book is Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. <laughs> Oh,